Our passage today is in Romans chapter 13. I want to encourage you to turn there. Keep your place there for a second. Let me tell you a quote. You can try and guess where it came from. Christianity is and always has been a part of the common law. Guess who said that? Those are the words of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in 1824. And that idea was not confined to Pennsylvania alone in the 19th century. Justice Story, who was a Supreme Court justice and considered the father of American jurisprudence, wrote, I verily believe Christianity to be necessary to the support of civil society. One of the beautiful boasts of our jurisprudence is that Christianity is a part of the common law. There never has been a period in which common law did not recognize Christianity as lying at its foundations, end quote. Even Thomas Jefferson, who argued that Christianity was not a part of the common law, at least in medieval England, had this to say about the relationship of Christianity to American law. He said, if before the introduction of Christianity among the Saxons, Christianity could not be a part of the common law because they were not yet Christians, and if we are not able to find among them a formal act of adoption of religion, we may safely affirm, though contradicted by all the judges and writers on earth, that Christianity neither is nor ever was a part of the common law. So I hope you heard that part where he puts in parentheses, though contradicted by all the judges and writers on earth. Whatever the fine points of his argument may have been trying to prove in terms of whether medieval Saxon England had Christianity and whether they formally adopted Christianity as, as a part of the common law, his point was that it was undeniable to him that everyone in his time, all the judges and writers on earth, thought that Christianity was part of the common law. No king but King Jesus. Who said that? That was the slogan during the American Revolution. Samuel Adams, when signing the Declaration of Independence, commented, we have this day restored the sovereign with a capital S to whom alone men alone ought to be obedient. From the rising to the setting sun, may his kingdom come. On September 25th, 1789, the United States Congress, after a time of prayer and a sermon in the House of Representatives, asked President George Washington to, quote, recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a constitution of government for their safety and happiness. And so President Washington responded with a Thanksgiving proclamation stating it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. What happened to that America? How did we become a nation where it's unconstitutional to even pray in public schools, or to have a war memorial in the shape of a cross, or to author legislation if motivated by religious purposes, or to prohibit a minor from determining their gender or having an abortion. We became such a nation because slowly over the course of time, the humanistic notion that man 
can make his own laws based upon his own values replaced the once widely accepted belief that only God reveals law and value. We became such a nation because Christians surrendered their role of proclaiming the gospel and holding this country accountable to the absolute unchanging standards of God. So with those thoughts, let's stand as we read God's word from Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for challenging parts of your word like this one, especially when we live in a time, in a place where these words can be hard to digest And so I pray that you would help us to understand what they mean and that we would then be courageous to apply them to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to take a look at this passage today and see what it says about the concepts of authority and civil government and its role in the interaction of the Christian and church with the state I want to try and do so in a way that doesn't overlap some of our conversations that we had in recent years with COVID and such. We, we did talk about this topic in various nuances over the last few years. But verse 1 of, of chapter 13 here is a foundational statement that we need to get right from the start. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So here we read every person, which means just that. It means every believer, every unbeliever alike. Every man, woman, and child is subject to the governing authorities. But what does the word subject and the phrase even governing authority mean? Well, that word authority occurs four times in their passage. It's tempting to just interpret that as political power. But in Greek, there are several words used for power that are closely connected but different. The first word would be kratos, which means simply the power to rule. It can be legitimate power. It can be illegitimate power, as in the case of the devil, for example, in Hebrews 2.14, who has the kratos, or power of death. And that would be the word more often used for political power, but that's not what we find in this passage. 
Kratos, uh, for example, is in our English words for government. When we see the word democracy, that's where made up of the words demos for people and kratos for power, which means the power of the people or the political power of the people. That's not the word, like I say here in Romans 13. Instead, Paul uses the word exousia, which in scripture usually refers to a delegated authority. One, something that is given by someone else. And that first person that gave the delegated authority has greater authority. And we know that's Paul's meaning here because in the very next sentence he writes, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So because God is king, he is the only relevant authority in any situation, whether that be the government or the church or the family. And those that rule over us derive their authority from God. So what does that mean? It means that the scope of power, the use of power, the accountability for power, all of those are determined by and restricted by God. As an example, we can see the word exousia used in John 18 and 19 during the conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. There, Jesus appearing before Pilate, the governing authority of that time, says to him, I am a king. And Pilate, assuming that Jesus did mean something other than the desire to dethrone Caesar, he just didn't see him as a threat, told Jesus that I need something from you, some ground on which I can legitimately let you go. But Jesus would not respond. And finally, Pilate, in frustration, asks Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And then Jesus replies with an important statement in John 19, 11, when he uses the word exousia. He says, you would have no authority. And there's that word, over me, unless it had been given to you from above. So the power that was given to Pilate was a delegated or subordinate authority because it was given to him by God. It was still a true authority. Pilate had the right to try Jesus and render judgment as he thought just. But because the authority was given to him by God, Pilate was responsible to God for how he exercised his authority. He was responsible to make just decisions that reflected God's principles. That's what it means to have exousia. Pilate sinned by condemning an innocent man, and he will have to answer to God for that sin. We tend to think about these things carefully because, or we need to think about these things carefully because it's easy for us to accept God being sovereign when we are given Christian leaders. Or when people who agree with our positions rule over us, it's much more difficult when our leaders are evil or act badly, make poor decisions. It's often been said that Nero, corrupt emperor of Rome, was was the one in position of authority at the time that Paul wrote this letter. But what about other evil rulers of human history? What about our leaders today? Verse 1 tells us, That even these authorities have been established by God and that we are subject to them. And that brings the idea of subjection or obedience 
to the foreground. What does that mean? Verse 2 reads, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Well, perhaps you were willing to accept verse 1. You could accept that God is sovereign. Nothing happens that doesn't happen within the, the purview or the decree of his will, but you weren't happy about it. But then verse 2 talks about resisting, and, and that immediately made you think about situations where we might have an evil or an unjust ruler. Are there no exceptions? And the scriptures do give us examples of exceptions. In Matthew twenty-two seventeen, Jesus is asked if it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. And the Jewish leaders thought that if Jesus said it was right to pay taxes, then they could discredit him with the people who hated Rome or resented taxes as a burden. On the other hand, if Jesus said that we should resist Rome by refusing to pay taxes, then they could paint him as an insurrectionist. They thought he had him trapped either way, and so Jesus asked for a coin and looked at it, and seeing the picture of Caesar on one side, he replied, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And that first part of his answer reinforced Caesar's authority. Even in unpopular matters like taxes, just as we see Paul doing in Romans 13, when he says in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. But, but think about the second part of Jesus' answer, where he says, and render to God what is God's. Jesus creates limits. Exousia authority is limited. And although Caesar has a God-given and legitimate authority, the authority of God is greater. Christians are to be the best of all citizens, obeying the government where possible. And yet there are times when we must refuse to obey the state and resist its decrees. And specifically, that's when the government requires that we disobey God's clear commands. That can be seen in Acts 4, for example, when the Sanhedrin, the ruling authorities of Israel, commanded the apostles to stop preaching the word of God and the gospel. And Peter and John replied, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of that which we have seen and heard. And then they were what? They were threatened and released, but they went right back to preaching the gospel. They were arrested again. And the second time, their answer was, we must obey God rather than men. So clearly Christians are given and are supposed to give preference to the direct command of God over contradictory commands of men. But verses 1 and 2 of Romans 13 suggest that as Christians, we need to have an attitude of willing submission, even to bad authorities, because we are ultimately submitting to the Lord who appointed those authorities over us. Calvin expressed this well when he wrote, we are not only subject to the authority of princes who perform their office towards us uprightly and faithfully as they should, but we are also subject to the authority of all who, by whatever means, have got control of affairs, even though they perform not a whit of the prince's office. I know that may be hard to accept this morning. I hope you can. God has given to man limited authority. 
Children, what are your authorities? Your mom and your dad. The Bible says that your fathers and your mothers represent God to you within the family, and you are, they are in charge of the family, but they must act on behalf of the family. In the church, the elders are said to be the shepherds and representatives of God to the flock, but they too must represent Christ, who is the chief shepherd. And that is true of civil government also. Our leaders must be God's ministers and representatives. And that's what verses 3 and 4 are about. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval. So it says those who rule over us, whom I'll start referring to simply as the state or civil authorities, will judge us when we fail to obey. Verse 4 mentions the power of the sword. The power of the sword is force. That's what the state has been given by God. And it's the very basis for how the state conducts its affairs. We don't like to think about that too much because forcing someone to do something against their will is not popular in our free society. We think people should be given options and persuaded to choose the right ones. We think of giving moral guidance and appealing to the best in people while providing an environment of self-fulfillment and expression. But here's a fact. Government exists, according to Paul in this chapter, because of the power of the sword, because of force. And the right to enforce laws by force is a right given to the state and not to the church. When Jesus was tried by Pilate, he acknowledged Pilate's authority over him, which included the right to put him to death. Further, Jesus did not claim that power for his disciples. When questioned about his kingdom, Jesus replied that his kingdom was of truth and of spirit. And so the state wields the power of the sword, but for what purpose? Paul says that the state exercises its power to reward those who do good and to punish those who do wrong or evil. The state is given power to defend its citizens and to establish, exercise, and maintain justice. Who's justice? Well, it's exousia, it's delegated authority. So who's justice? It will be God's justice. That's why the good are rewarded and the evil are punished. Good and evil, right and wrong, are moral concepts that are determined and defined by God. And when the state operates as it should, there is no reason for those who serve the Lord to have any ground for terror. The state's primary purpose for existence is to protect them by promoting God's justice, to protect and defend the innocent from the wicked. And verse 5 says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So when we have a right view of the governing authorities and and their role coupled with the fact that they are ministers of God, that they've been delegated authority from him, we are compelled to be subject to them, not just because of a fear that the sword might come and punish us, but for the sake of conscience. And when the Bible appeals to conscience, it appeals to the mind's agreement with God's word. It's our internal recognition of God's truth. We are to be reading and hearing these words in Romans chapter 13, recognizing there's truth here. Because God is ultimately sovereign over all things, so nothing can be ruling over anything outside of, of his jurisdiction. 
And we should obey our rulers out of an obedience to God. Because in submitting to those in authority over us, not only do we recognize that God is sovereign over all things, but we are modeling a proper obedience to authority, which ultimately points people to being in obedience to God, the ultimate authority. So how then should Christians in the church interact with the government? Well, most of America's early settlers came to America not to find religious freedom, per se, but to establish churches that would support their faith. As the colonies were established, we find that Puritan congregationalism and Presbyterianism dominated New England, while Anglicanism was strong in Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia. And some of the remaining colonies either supported tolerance for all faiths or had strong influences by minority groups like the Quakers. And then after the Revolutionary War, there were 13 states, each with its own dominant faith group, and many with established state churches. Each state was concerned that another state would potentially wield undue influence over their state and the church that had been established there. And so after much deliberation, the First Amendment was written, which writes... And reads that the Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The First Amendment restricted only the federal government. It restricted Congress. Restricted them from making a law that would establish a national religion or church. It did not restrict the states from establishing state churches. Might not have known that. Founding fathers wanted to prohibit two things. Any attempt by the federal government to establish a national church and any attempt by the federal government to interfere with the various states or any individual's right to believe as they wished. And then the 14th Amendment made further changes. It said that no state could deprive a person of of their liberty. And then the Supreme Court interpreted that liberty is covering everything under the First Amendment. Therefore, neither the federal government nor any state government, by extension, could establish a religion or prohibit individuals from the free exercise of their faith. It's important that you understand that the Constitution does not contain the phrase separation of church and state. That phrase not only can't be found in the Constitution, but it doesn't reflect the principles of the First and the Fourteenth Amendments. Those that drafted the Constitution and approved the Constitution never intended the government be separated from the church or the church be separated from the state. As I said at the beginning, for the first century after the United States officially began in the late 18th century, it was nearly universally proclaimed that Christianity was an inseparable part of our nation's laws and well-being. The First and Fourteenth Amendments protected the Christian, and the church from the state. Not the state from the Christian. At this moment, King Jesus reigns over every corner of this world. President of the United States, the Congress, the Supreme Court, they all must answer to him. But there is one problem, and that is God's kingdom is invisible, 
And it is the nature of sin, as we saw back in chapter 1, to suppress the truth of its existence. We learned all the way back there at the start of this letter that many in our nation, including a majority of our leaders at every level of government, will live as if Jesus is not king. They want to protect themselves from the king of kings. And as we read months ago in Psalm 2, throw off the yoke of his sovereign rule. And one of our duties as believers and as the church is to be a witness of Jesus Christ, to make that invisible reign of Jesus visible. As one author says, nothing is visible in the dark, and so we are called to be light in this world. The state may be given the power of the sword, but let's understand something important about the limitations of force. You may be able to restrain the actions of evildoers, but force in and of itself cannot actually change or reform the heart. I'm not suggesting that government shouldn't be concerned with morality. On the contrary, morality is precisely what the state should be concerned with. Because as God's minister, it possesses delegated authority. As George Washington once said, without morality, there is no true basis for law. And without religion, there is no morality. But that's not the same thing as saying that the state can develop morality in its citizens. Because it can't. The state can create laws and penalties. It can enforce those laws and penalties. But none of that will change a person's heart. And so one of the keys to this first part of Romans 13 is that the state is to punish the one who does wrong or practices evil. Its role is not to teach or to proclaim. At least not in its own imagination what is wrong or evil. But to punish what God has defined as evil. How can the state punish what God has defined as evil except by acknowledging itself as God's servant and knowing his word? No man or woman has the right to create laws that contradict the purposes and priorities and character of the creator. Legislators are obligated to seek what God says is right and then implement that into government. What happens when people create their own laws? They end up promoting sin. What happens when they apply their own penalties? They inevitably choose harsher or lighter penalties depending upon their own worldly objectives and values. They consistently elevate economic and political crimes over spiritual crimes. It's far more serious, for example, in American law to monopolize an industry than it is to commit adultery. In fact, adultery is no longer a crime like it once was because crimes of immorality in general are not recognized by a godless government. Should lawmaking in this country simply become an exercise of cutting and pasting the Old Testament into modern laws? What do we do where the Old Testament is silent? Those are great questions. In Matthew 23, Jesus criticized the scribes and Pharisees for being willing to pay a tithe of mint and dill and cumin while they neglected the weightier matters of the law. He then said that the weightier matters were moral principles like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, Jesus didn't say, as many today might like to argue, that all we have to do is observe the weightier matters. In fact, he told the Pharisees that they needed to do both. 
But the fact that Jesus talked about weightier matters does suggest that there's more to the law than simple do's and don'ts. The moral principles behind the specific laws are the weightier matters, and that would explain why Jesus expands upon some of the Ten Commandments during the Sermon on the Mount. With regard to murder, Jesus says one should not even speak to his brother in anger. Why? Because the moral principle behind punishing murder is not just about an eye for an eye. It's about respecting the creation of God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So when we casually lash out at our friends and family with angry words, we are violating the same principles that lie behind the prohibition against murder. And so Jesus reminds us, yes, those are things that we need to do, but you need to step back and look behind these statutes and ask, what are the principles? Why did God institute that in the first place? What's the letter? What's the spirit? Do both. And that's where America comes back into the picture. Our legislators as ambassadors of God who wield the power of the sword to punish evil are to exercise spirit-filled wisdom and discern the moral principles that underlie God's laws in the Bible so that we can implement them in 21st century America. And it may be that as I describe that, and you go, that would be wonderful That would be fantastic, but I cannot imagine today's Congress penning laws with a Bible open in front of them. I can't imagine a city, a state, a country that acknowledges God and refuses to craft its own laws and penalties to further immoral agendas. I can't imagine a government today in America actually searching for God's already established law and then proclaiming that to wrongdoers. And seeing the sword is meant to punish them. So how do we possibly convince a government, our government, of their responsibility so that they don't end up like Nineveh or Babylon or Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, man always worships something. If he does not worship the one and true God, he will worship a false God. There's no such thing as a religiously neutral state. Because there's no such thing as a religiously neutral man or woman. And what we've seen spring up over the past century is the rise of the national religion of secular humanism. And in many ways, Congress has done exactly what it was prohibited from doing, and that is established the National Church of Humanism. And behind every Senate Judiciary Committee vote or Supreme Court decision, political action, committee goal, presidential veto is someone's worldview of how things ought to be. And behind that worldview is a God. And it's either the God of all creation or it is a false God. So what are we to do? We must speak the truth to the state. And when I speak of Truth, I'm not talking about exclusively fighting for religious freedom as if our end is simply to be able to worship alone in peace. We just celebrated the 4th of July, a holiday that promotes freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom for what? Freedom to be left alone? Is that what it was for? No, if you really think about freedom, freedom from bondage and slavery to sin. 
Freedom from tyranny. Freedom to share the truth of Christ in the public sphere and engage in conversations about topics like same-sex marriages or gender identity without being immediately labeled as religious or offensive or bigoted or hateful. We must be bold to speak that truth, even at risk of rejection and persecution. And friends, we must also become long-term visionaries and strategists. The problem that we find ourselves in took generations to develop. And it will take generations to solve. And not only did it take generations to develop, but it developed under the highly coordinated and strategic work of an enemy whose ultimate aim is to dethrone God and blaspheme his name. We have to be just as strategic. Christians who become politicians, and we need lots of them, and those Christians who interact with politicians ought to slowly and steadily and purposefully work to reintroduce biblical principles. The church's task is to progressively bring to pass by the power of the Holy Spirit what Christ has already achieved at the cross, and that is the salvation of the nations. We are to work to bring about God's kingdom and dominion as if it was God's intent that his kingdom should extend throughout the world. We have to have that kind of attitude. It may not fully happen in our lifetime. It may be generations to come. But what will be our part in speaking truth? Not just fighting to be separate and independent and isolated in our church, but speaking the truth. What will be our strategy beyond just surviving? Will we have an optimistic attitude instead of just the pessimistic, will the end be tomorrow? Next, Jesus told his disciples to go and teach the nations to observe all that I have commanded to you. It is still our responsibility as citizens of this republic and ambassadors of Christ to teach what God's word says about government and its role and accountability before God, and we should support those ministries that do that. We must also guard our hearts and speak with fear and trembling when we condemn the sin of our rulers. It's so easy to speak out of fleshly anger and pride and to fall into personal hatred when we aren't governing well in the church or we aren't governing well in the family. We have to check our motives constantly so that in speaking the truth about others, we are not laying ourselves open to the claim of hypocrisy. And the criticisms that we lay must be accompanied by a deep spirit of submission to the authority that they bear. We also need to remember that the starting point for godly reform of our government is not political action. Christ's kingdom is not established through government. Those who naively think that by electing the right man as president... We will see righteousness reign in America are forgetting that God's kingdom grows from the inside out, beginning in the heart. And from the bottom up, godly leaders are a reflection of godly citizenry. And so the starting point for renewal in our land is the preaching of the gospel to sinners, not just political action. 
And then remember, when you grow frustrated by our leaders, Paul affirms that God is in control of all things. Thus, if there is someone in charge, then it must be with his permission. And when the government is corrupt, Paul says, pray. In 1 Timothy 2, he says, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So friends, if our governments will not listen, that doesn't mean that we stop the other strategies. It means that we must still pray. We must still faithfully act as God's servant. It is certainly our desire to be able, as Paul says, to live peaceful and quiet lives of godliness and dignity. Alexis de Tocqueville, a French observer of the American Revolution and the early development of the United States, said that the essential difference between the revolution in America versus the revolution in France was that the American war was fought for freedom of religion while the French Revolution was a war against God and the church. The American Revolution, he wrote, was built upon God. It was built upon his word and upon faith in the salvation of Jesus Christ. The French Revolution, he said, was anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-church. One produced freedom and the other produced slavery. De Tocqueville concluded of America, there is no country in the world where the Christian religion re Tains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America, and there is no country so free. And he was right. Our ultimate enemies are spiritual. Our weapons of warfare are spiritual weapons. God's kingdom is established in this world, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Our trust must not be in ourselves as we vote, as we write the legislators, as we speak against public policies or wicked leaders. Our confidence must be in our God who raises up leaders and brings them down as he wills. We must realize that our strategy starts at the grassroots level. We must be preaching to the hearts of our citizens. Our trust must be in the one who calls us to faithfulness the one who alone is able to bless us with renewal in this land. And unless our government rests once more upon God as it once did, it will fall. Let us be there for a people who are faithful. People who proclaim these truths. People who expect our current leaders to be ministers of God. People who don't retreat into the safety of of bunker churches. People who teach our future leaders the moral principles of biblical law. People who have a multi-generational vision and hope. People who are confident that God's kingdom is victorious. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great word and, and the encouragement and confidence that we have from knowing that you are in control, even when it seems difficult, even when we have wicked leaders. Lord, you've told us not to give up, not to retreat, not to hide. You've told us to have a confidence in your word, but to remember that your kingdom is based upon spirit and truth. Father, the reform of the heart, the teaching and training of our future leaders, the calling to account 
that authority is delegated from you. All of these things must be on our minds as we interact with our governments. And Father, I know it seems overwhelming for us as a small body of people, but we have a part to play. And I pray that these thoughts would be true in, in the church with a capital C throughout this nation. It is the fragmented and disunited church that has lost a voice that needs the work of your spirit to revive. That it may pray, that it may teach and proclaim. Father, may you do all these things. We know that you can. We know there once was a country that at least believed in and thought of themselves as ministers of God. Nor may we have such a country again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.